Hey, I'm Stan, and this is about learning. Today, I'm talking to Piers Ben about the battles over free speech in our universities. Piers teaches philosophy at Roehampton University and has been a lecturer in St Andrews, Leeds, Imperial College London, and King's College London. His introductory book Ethics is found on many philosophy reading lists, and last year he released Intellectual Freedom and the Culture Wars, published by Palgrave Macmillan. This conversation really establishes a running theme for season three. It's freedom. So far we've looked at anarchy and at democratic schools. We've considered how learners can benefit from being trusted with decision-making and how they're harmed by adults' attempts to control them. For those who finish school and go to university, life is no longer controlled by parents and teachers. It's a time to be free, try new things, etc, etc. But are universities still the havens of free thinking they've long been heralded as? The last few years have seen increased recognition for groups defined along lines of race, gender and sexuality. We've become more aware of how university environments can make people feel unwelcome. At the same time, we've seen academics lambasted and intimidated for saying things deemed to be offensive. Are these attacks a sign of robust youth engagement, or do they constitute a worrying threat to the freedom of speech? This alone gives Piers and I lots to talk about, but there's a sting in the tail. In the second half, I ask some awkward questions, and then it gets really interesting. Let me partially explain. In response to recent scandals, a purportedly grassroots campaign has popped up called Free Speech Champions, with the stated goal of protecting free expression on campus. I actually arranged an interview with two members of Free Speech Champions, but they backed out when I spotted a suspicious connection between their group and another with dark political connotations. As chance would have it, Piers Ben himself is part of this web of connections, and I make sure to ask him what he thinks of it all. Listeners, I really enjoyed making this episode. I hope you enjoy listening. Piers Ben, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for inviting me. I'm going to get straight down to it. So our big theme for today is free speech. Do you think free speech is currently under threat? And if so, what's the nature of the threat? It's hard to give a definitive answer, but my impression is there are significant threats coming from different political wings. It's not just a right-wing problem or a left-wing problem. It's a problem to do with the what seems to be the general polarization of politics uh, on both sides of the Atlantic, particularly starting, I guess, around 2013, 2014. I'm particularly interested in universities, although obviously what I say can apply to other areas, too. The idea has got around, particularly from people who are regarded as right wing, that there's a particular problem of free speech um, in universities caused by the left. I think there is enough truth in this for us to be worried, though I don't want to go overboard with it. I'm thinking particularly um, that the background is two reports published in 2020 um, giving evidence about the problem. One was by the think tank Civitas. The other was by the think tank Policy Exchange. Uh, Health warning, some people regard these think tanks as right wing and will therefore regard them as discredited. I think we have to live with that. 
and just look at the content. Civitas did a survey of the levels of restrictions on free speech in British universities. And so they did a survey of all 137 registered higher education establishments in the UK. Uh, they divided those establishments into three categories, those they called the most friendly category when it came to free speech, the moderately friendly and the least friendly uh, category. Um, they discovered that 48 of the universities, they, according to their criteria, which of course we can debate, but according to their criteria, 48 of these universities were in the most restrictive category, 70 were in the moderately restrictive category. And the most restrictive categories, interestingly, seem to be the Russell Group universities, those that are regarded as top, whatever is meant by top. Quite, never been quite sure what was meant by that, but anyway, the Russell Group, which uh, tallies with my own anecdotal impressions. They said that 68% of all universities had had a controversy about free speech between 2017 and 2020, which is when the survey was conducted. Um, they said that 53% had demands for censoring allegedly or actually transphobic speech, that 55% had a cancel culture, as they call it, of open letters and um, petitions um, advocating restrictions on what could be said by staff, students and visitors, that 50% had harassment policies that placed in Civitas's words, I'm not entirely sure what it means, but that, that placed over 100 levels of practical restrictions on free speech, but on the positive side, they also found that 50 universities had policies designed to prevent disinvitations and no platformings and this kind of thing. And in that, they comply with the law because the Education Act 1986, Section 43, I think it is, uh, places a requirement on universities to guarantee free speech. So that's the Civitas report. The Policy Exchange report, I'll try to keep this brief, published the same year, uh, August 2020, talked about the chilling effect, which is, again, difficult to make complete sense of because some people, what some people will call a chilling effect, others will call the natural discomfort of finding your views are unpopular. And, you know, if you find yourself in a minority, well, what's wrong with that? I mean, just because the majority of people don't like your views, that's hardly a problem per se. Um, they, they did a survey, and again, it's hard to vouch for the complete reliability of it, but what they say is that a third of academics would seek to avoid hiring a known Leave supporter in the Brexit referendum, and that between a third and a half would mark down a research bid if it took a right-wing perspective. All these terms, of course, like left-wing, right-wing can be discussed and debated, and I don't want to, to take these policy, these, um, leave, these um, reports uh, entirely at face value, but there is prima facie evidence that there is a problem. And in universities, unlike, I would say, in the world at large. The problem does come predominantly from a left-wing point of view for the simple reason that most universities um, are left of centre. I mean, most academics do take a left of centre perspective on, on policies, um, widely understood. In right-wing universities, there'd be a similar problem. I mean, you can imagine small liberal arts colleges in the United States that have socially conservative views might have restrictions on pro-abortion uh, activism or um, pro-evolution. I mean, they have an entirely different problem, but they are facets of the same basic problem, which is an attack on intellectual freedom and open inquiry. So that's just a bit of background for you. Thanks for that. I mean, you, you've identified two main types of censorship, the first being sort of outright deplatforming and not allowing people to 
say their thing but also that chilling effect you mentioned which is a much more subtle thing where people sort of self-censor because they think they're going to get called out for speaking their beliefs i just want to focus on an example perhaps of one of the of the former which is the kathleen stock affair so in october this year um, Kathleen Stock, who's an academic at the University of Sussex, um, had a campaign against her. A campaign called Anti-Turf Sussex essentially said, we want her to be fired uh, because she's espousing a bastardised version of radical feminism that excludes and engenders trans people. And this sort of set off a media firestorm, lots of people calling for her to be sacked, other people saying this was a travesty. What's your take? Is this, is this a good example of uh, censorship? Uh, or attempted censorship. It's a good example of what's broadly called cancel culture. I know this, again, is a contentious term because there's a debate about what it means and whether it exists. Um, I'll declare a sort of bias here. Um, I know Catherine Stock quite well. Um, I worked with her for two years in the same department in the late 1990s. Uh, we didn't always agree on things, but she is a very honest thinker, a very, very sharp philosopher, I think. And she's certainly not, in my judgment, a hater or a bigot, or a phobe of any kind. Now, others may disagree. People who read her writings might think I'm wrong about that, but that's just a bit of background to, to lay out my own possible bias. Um, I'd be writing about this as well. I, I'd be, I wrote a quite a long piece for um, an American volume coming out, I hope, this year or next year, on the Kathleen Stock Affair, and I wrote that before the recent events uh, of October 2021. Um, in 2018, uh, I mean, she's an academic, she's a professor of philosophy, uh, she didn't write much about feminist issues or trans issues. She actually works in philosophy of art. That's her real research area. But she got interested in a proposed reform to the Gender Recognition Act 2004 that would have allowed self-identification alone to be the basis for trans women to be admitted to women's spaces. They would include hospital wards, changing rooms, uh, women's prisons, uh, women's refuges uh, and other places, too. Kathleen thought this was potentially dangerous to women because, I mean, various arguments, and she's written a long and very interesting book about all this stuff. But one of the obvious problems with this that she highlighted is that in principle, there'd be nothing to stop men from simply posing as trans women to gain access to, for example, women's spaces, women's showers, this sort of thing. Um, she also goes on in the book to argue that the trans movement, which is founded on a certain philosophical theory she calls gender theory is um, misguided in philosophically and it's bad for trans people and for women alike. But that's a detailed argument. I think a very interesting one that deserves a lot of attention. But the, in, in August 2018, I remember her doing this. She tweeted um, her opposition to the proposed recognition. Almost immediately, there was a sort of flurry of both support. Let's not forget she has a lot of support from gender critical feminists, huge amount of support, but also a lot of uh, opposition, some of which uh, was vitriolic. And really, I think in some cases quite unhinged. Um, people calling her a transphobe, a hater, people rubbishing the arguments she had without giving a fair hearing. So you often heard the argument that said, trans women are no more th a threat to women than anyone else. And it's discriminatory against them to say they are a threat to women in changing rooms and so on. I mean, there's an obvious answer to this and she does detail answers. It's probably fair to say, at least I would say, that men, most men, don't pose a threat to women. Um, that's not a reason, though, to allow any man to wander into a women's changing room at a health club or wander into or, or, or demand um, entry to a woman's prison if they're convicted of a crime. So we need to, to tease a lot of this out. 
And I think Kathleen does a very good job, a very patient job in answering these objections. But one felt with the worst aspects of the Twitter abuse and the, the student campaigns that followed, the reason had been left to the wind. People weren't actually were thrown to the wind. People weren't actually interested in, in, in looking at what she said and the arguments, which I think are fair-minded, even if her conclusions aren't true. I think they largely are true, but you know, they are fair-minded arguments. People weren't interested in listening to her. They thought, ah, she's saying, um, she's casting doubt on the theory that says that you are whatever you think you are. You are whatever you identify as. She's cast out on theory. She calls it gender theory. Therefore, she's a transphobe. Therefore, she's a threat to trans women, especially those on campus. She is contributing to a culture that involves physical violence, discrimination, even murder. She's a part of the cause of this. Therefore, she must be silenced. But also, more subtly, she's invalidating who people are. She's invalidating who I am. And this phrase, who I am, often comes up in these cultural wars. She's invalidating their self-conception. And so she's causing hurt, mental health problems, and anxiety. And I've heard people say this. I mean, just about a month ago, five weeks ago, I was um, on a panel at the Battle of Ideas, a big conference in London. One of her opponents was in the audience and made the case using this language of she's uh, it's transphobic to take her views. She's a threat to people's mental health, um, self-conceptions and so on. And, you know, this person was given a fair hearing quite rightly because it was quite brave of that person to be, you know, a minority voice at that conference. But it was a flavor of the sort of thing that we're up against. It obviously requires a lot of a fairly detailed, rigorous analysis, but that's the flavor of it. And what was happening five weeks ago was that Kathleen Stock went back to university after summer vacation, did a bit of teaching, people in balaclavas and letting off flares, no doubt many of them outside agitators, and I doubt that many of them were trans people anyway, and they were allies or self-described allies, were conducting these demonstrations. And in the end, she just said she couldn't take any more of this. She just got distressed and put in her resignation about three weeks later. So that's a very, very potted history of the background to it. I think what happened to her is pretty appalling. It's true she had a lot of support from some academics, not as many as I would like, but some. It is true that in the end, the vice chancellor did put out a robust statement supporting her freedom to speak. And some argued it rather late, but uh, it did come in the end. But, you know, that's the sort of thing that people are broadly talking about when they talk about cancel culture, which is not vigorous disagreement. It is creating an intimidating atmosphere an atmosphere where you can't go about your daily life, and, and also disseminating absurdities, uh, that she's a hater, a, a phobe, this stuff. It got very unpleasant. I mean, I was surprised that there wasn't more universal condemnation of the harassing side of her treatment. But I also think there wasn't much sort of common sense analysis of whether she had crossed the line, because one can imagine if, if someone had been advocating for, say, racial segregation, Maybe there's a court, you know, there's a definitely an argument that that's hate speech and shouldn't be allowed at a university. I think there are some people who'd say that what she says about trans people is discriminatory on a similar level and therefore shouldn't be allowed. And there's this, because we've got this heightened awareness of identity now and what sort of groups we fall into, a lot of people think that anything which sort of threatens um, a group's perceived identity is discriminatory and shouldn't be allowed. There's a gap here, or there's a there's a grey area to be explored between what's just something that's hard to hear, but okay, and what is genuinely discriminatory language. These types of affairs don't tend to happen in a civilised, open debate sort of way. There's a lot of vitriol. 
In this case, there's a lot of vitriol coming from the student body in this, in the form yeah, of harassment. I, well, you, you're raising several points there. Um, I'll take the point about whether there's a culture among young people of resisting attacks on their sense of identity and, and oversensitivity. I think the truth is that most young people, and I teach them, uh, aren't really like this. They are actually quite prepared to discuss things openly. They might self-censor up to a point. And, and indeed, um, a great many trans people um, don't strongly disagree with what Kathleen Stock says. Uh, there was actually a letter in the Times about a month ago from a group of trans people saying that she should have a right to, to free speech on this and saying, I, th- I can't remember exactly what it said, but actually not expressing strong disagreement. On the case of discrimination, I mean, the word discrimination can be used as a kind of conversation stopper, but clearly discrimination in some circumstances is, is necessary. I mean, art critics are meant to discriminate good and bad works of art. Uh, Juries are meant to discriminate guilty defendants from innocent defendants. So the question is, when is discrimination unjust? Racial discrimination is clearly unjust because there's no rational or reasonable way that someone's membership of a racial group or whatever the the right phrase is, um, is relevant to anything, apart perhaps from playing black or white characters in plays or marginal cases like that. But it's not relevant to anything. The, the question of whether male-bodied people, this is really what struck me one of whether male-bodied people who, and let's not argue about whether they are male-bodied or we'll end up infinitely uh, disputing our terms, but whether they should be allowed automatic access to women's spaces. Um, Kathleen, it should be said, never opposed the Gender Recognition Act. Um, and she does say quite clearly in her book that... Um, there's a place for trans people. They have the same, they have human rights. Uh, they are not to be discriminated against um, on the grounds of being trans in, in areas where it's not relevant. Um, that there's a validity in, she even actually argues for respecting their preferred pronouns. So she goes a lot further than many of her critics might assume she does. The issue about male-bodied people in, in women's spaces, given automatic access, as opposed to access on the basis of a medical certificate proving long-standing dysphoria and so on and so forth, is clearly that, and this is something else very sensitive she touches on, about sexuality. I mean, we used to imagine before maybe the last 20 years or so that that the average, you know, the typical trans woman was was, was a gay man who also was was transsexual, but originally a gay man. But I think it's true to say, and she produces figures to to back this up, that most trans women are actually, uh, they're they're heterosexual in the sense that... uh, they are attracted to female-bodied people. Now, you might say they're lesbians if you say that they're actually really women, and this is a whole debate dispute about whether lesbians um, can have, you know, whether a trans woman can be a lesbian. That's another very toxic issue. And Kathleen Stock's concern is clearly that if this is automatic, um, there's a certain risk to women, and there have been some cases of this. I mean, you might say they're very rare. I don't know if they are that rare, but there was a, a trans woman prisoner called Karen White who was convicted of rape um, you know, uh, raping a woman or women went to uh, a women's prison um, because she declared herself a woman. Whereupon she proceeded to assault other female inmates. Now this is this is one of these. Even if it's a very rare thing, it's a very high impact rarity. Any policy that allows that to happen is clearly something we should at least be worried about. That's the sort of thing that Kathleen starts worrying about. So it's not unjust discrimination to keep male-bodied people out of changing rooms and hospitals. We have it anyway. We keep men out of, well, we used to keep men out of female hospital wards and prisons. So that's the, the, the answer there. On the general point, are young people oversensitive? I think there's, there's a culture that encourages some to be. But I, I mean, from my encounter with students, it's 
it, it, these are vociferous minorities who get like this. Um, aided and better for above, very largely, due perhaps to the marketization of higher education, um, people wanting to attract fees, obviously, and therefore being tempted to provide an environment that students will find comfortable. We've seen the spread recently of the, the idea of safe spaces. So it's encouraging to hear that you say most of the young people you've taught are very happy to talk about difficult issues. But perhaps this idea of safe spaces, people might say, well, if a few people are uncomfortable, that safe, that space has become unsafe. If you're talking about issues which are triggering some in the group, you've made an unsafe space. So it doesn't, they would perhaps argue it doesn't matter if most people are willing to talk about something. If it excludes a few people, then it's not okay. And I guess on that theme, um, you, you've got these threats to free speech. You've got people, um, you've got academics sort of losing their jobs or quitting over the, the flack they're coming under. Um, what can or could schools and universities do to better protect and perhaps define free speech? Well, okay, there are two protection issues you mentioned. The first you mentioned a moment ago about protecting people from uh, lack of safety, uh, minority, for example. The other is about protecting free speech. Um, I think that, I mean, the, the basic principle of free speech for most people who advocate it, and when I say advocate, I mean, hardly anybody I know is, is an absolutist about free speech because most people agree that you shouldn't be allowed to incite racial hatred. In fact, we have a law forbidding that, or religious hatred. It comes philosophically from, at least it's highly influenced by a famous essay called On Liberty by John Stuart Mill in came out in 1859. That is the, the classic text, really. And I think really every sixth former studying philosophy and certainly every philosophy undergraduate should read it, uh, whether they like it or not. Mill basically proposed that um, freedom of discussion and inquiry follows really from freedom of the individual, which he prized very highly. But he accepted that there are restrictions, should be restrictions, supposed that um, the only ground for interfering with people's freedom is harm to others. And that became known as the harm principle, although Mill didn't use that phrase. The harm principle quite justifiably prohibits certain forms of speech, incitement to hatred, incitement to violence. I would include other things. I mean, certain forms of bullying, which don't involve in physical violence, can have a comparable an effect of comparable severity. And now given that, of course, we find those advocating safe spaces and so on, in effect, appealing to Mill themselves and say, look, um, saying to those who advocate free speech in these contexts, look, you say you believe in free speech, but also believe in not allowing incitement to violence. Can't you see that in some important sense, this is violence? Hence, you get the, the phrase words of violence. Now, that's not a stupid thing to say, because we should allow that some forms of harms uh, don't involve physical harm, like, you know, being assaulted or or physical murder and so on. What I think we have to ask with, with the safe space movement, which a, a lot of you know, journalistic ink has been spilled on that. If somebody says they're unsafe, we need to know what the danger is. Um, you can't be unsafe unless there's a danger. What are you unsafe from? If it is I'm unsafe from uh, serious harm, like physical violence or discrimination or bullying, okay, that's um, to be taken very seriously and assessed according to the relevant evidence. If it's about feeling offended or feeling upset or feeling that you don't, you're made to feel uncomfortable because your worldview is being challenged, well, that's exactly, in some cases, what education should be doing. Um, so if you have the idea that you are whatever you think you are, 
or, or that you deserve some special respect because this is your opinion. Well, then the danger is that people don't get challenged about all sorts of things. Religion, that's a, a hot potato in schools, I think. Uh, politics, um, trans issues, some aspects of trans issues are susceptible to this worry. I mean, people should not be safe from challenging ideas. Now, I'm not saying, I mean, in many of these individual disputes are quite hard to untangle because there's always a, a case that isn't stupid to be made for saying it goes beyond making somebody intellectually uncomfortable. They feel threatened in some way. But my feeling is that there's a, there's a, a tendency to play things safe here, um, to stay away from controversy, where students actually might enjoy the controversy in the end and might learn from it, as long as it's presented in a fair-minded way, and instead make people feel comfortable. I say, I, I, I think the right, so to speak, exaggerated problem, I don't want to, uh, to use safe space like a, a slogan, but there is a danger. And, you know, as we discussed before, there's, uh, Greg Lukianoff and Johnson Haidt in their book, The Calling the American Mind, which I think is a rather good book. Some people hate it, of course. Um, really, they, they, they define three problems at the heart of the culture that Generation Z, as they call it, face. One is the idea that feelings somehow triumph, uh, somehow should trump uh, facts. I can't remember exactly how they phrased it. The other is that the world is divided into good people and the bad people. And the other is that anxiety should be fled from rather than confronted. Uh, the idea that what makes you, um, what doesn't hurt you, make you makes you weaker. Uh, really, the truth is, in many contexts, we need to confront anxieties in order to overcome them and not run away from them. Now, they produce a lot of data about what's happening in America. I think Britain is a lot less polarized than America. America has a very aggressive right wing as well, don't forget, which I think is a bigger problem in their culture. We don't have that quite to, quite the same extent. Uh, but you get it on both sides, uh, menacing threats, denunciations when there should be rational and fair-minded and honest and charitable discussion and debate the student should never be discouraged from engaging in that yeah i mean i've i've gonna also say i really enjoyed the coddling of the american mind um and they they talked about those three sort of fallacies in the context of fragility sort of saying that young people now are more fragile and that's actually bad for them that may be part of the reason that we've got they've got so many mental health problems and why this campus stuff is going on and they argue for a sort of approach where we aim for anti-fragility where we help young people learn how to basically become stronger by grappling with ideas they disagree with which is a great idea from them but i feel that they they are a little bit short on concrete proposals i mean do we have any idea how can we help young people meaningfully grapple with differing points of view? Yeah. Well, what they propose is the Chicago Statement on Free Speech in Universities. And it's associated with an organization um, called, the acronym is FIRE. I forget now what it stands for. Uh, but it's about um, promoting free speech and inquiry in universities. And um, basically, it's liberal humanism, roughly speaking. It's the idea that to be there's a great distinction between being hostile and being um, rigorous in your arguments, that we can distinguish attacking someone's arguments from attacking the person, that anybody um, who is being disagreed with has a right to reply, that very often you can resolve disputes factually and by the cultivation of sound reasoning using truth-sensitive methods of arguing, and that um, unless there's very good reason to the contrary, um, pretty much any of you should be allowed to be heard, aired mm. if it's an opinion rather than something that incites you know, some, obvious, some obvious harm. And we can agree there are sometimes difficult to draw the line. So they're proposing an intellectual culture where 
ideas can be robustly proposed and challenged and where people don't always take it personally if their beliefs are challenged. I mean, religion, of course, is a very sensitive issue here because, you know, 100 years ago, you can imagine that um, a lot of free inquiry would have been stifled by the religious right. And in parts of America, that's still the case, though we have very little of that problem here. Um, so the evolution dispute, amazingly, is still an issue um, in American educational policy. Now you can imagine, imagine a sort of young earth creationist saying, look, you're insulting and threatening who I am by saying that the Darwin theory of evolution is true and, the, and that this universe could be others are, is 13.8 thousand million years and not six or 10,000 years old. You're insulting my identity. I was raised as a Christian. That's how I am. I'm one of the saved or the elect. Um, this goes to the very roots of my sense of purpose. So even if your ridiculous theory is true, you're still hurting me by telling students. And not only that, you're telling students things that have terrible social effects. This was said in the about 100 years ago. Darwinism uh, is responsible for racism. It's been accused of being behind Nazism. I mean, all these arguments. And yet I take it that Darwinism, so far as I know, is true. Uh, do we say, well, it might have some bad effects, so let's, let's keep it quiet? I think we don't because, you know, um, people ought to know enough about it to know that these awful things don't follow from this truth. I think with some of these other disputes, uh, the trans one seems to be the most toxic at the moment, but but maybe race is a close second and other things too. Um, you need to cultivate a habit of mind where you just look at the facts um, as far as you can. And you don't get sidetracked by theories from, say, the late, late 1960s in, uh, in Paris that say, oh, there are no such things as facts or there are no facts or interpretations. I mean, you can discuss that at a higher level, but it's got to be at a high level you discuss that, not filtered at 10 pound. Uh, oh, reality, reality is just subjective. It's, it's what you think it is. That doesn't get it anywhere. And you do it in a fair-minded way, and you allow a right to reply, and you, it should be respectful, and it can be educational. And okay, people sometimes feel hurt when they find things that are true, but they might actually emerge the better for it. I mean, they might not, but it's... You see, I don't want to polarise this because there is an aggressive free speech movement that really is tin-eared about hurt to people and is tin-eared about the possible social effects and feeling discriminated against. We have to get the balance right. But at the moment, I think it's not... There's a movement, there's a, there's a set of assumptions in certain British departments where safety, as you call it, is being given too much priority and rigorous investigations are being too little priority. And students aren't helped by it. No. I think that that's really important that universities should be clarifying and doubling down on not only the fact that they want to preserve freedom of speech and free expression, but also to really be specific, like what and what is and what isn't okay. Where is that line drawn? Because so then people can refer their own grievances or compare their own grievances against that sort of metric and what, what is and isn't okay. I feel like there's another side to it, which is the actual educating young people. I mean, I know uh, when I started university, I met a lot of people there who'd, who'd had a private education. And my feeling was that they tended to be streets ahead of me and other publicly educated people in terms of their confidence, their ability to speak and disagree and argue. I felt like the state system had let us down when it came to expressing ourselves and debating. And I think it's probably letting letting people down just as much or more now. Now, I, right now I work in, in a school which is rather, it's a state school, it's somewhat left-wing, and we, we do pride ourselves on having a more sort of holistic curriculum. We have 
time when students can learn about wider issues and, and talk and you know in that time we try and tackle issues which really do exist in our local community the issues of sexism there's a lot of real sexism going on um, homophobia transphobia racism much of which is rooted in sort of I guess it's rooted in ignorance in the family or among children and part of our job we feel part of our job as teachers is to correct that ignorance and show them well this is actually how things are this is how things are yet we go too far we 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 go further than just saying like you know it's okay to it's okay to be gay and like women and men can be equal we go beyond that to sort of left-wing propaganda much of which i regardless agree with but i still can't help disagreeing with the method we're not empowering young people by telling them how things should be all the time we need to develop their critical thinking we need to take them to the to the coalface to where the disagreements are happening now give them some opportunities to learn some facts and let them form their own opinions i think that's right i mean you'd obviously know more than i do about the situation in schools i mean i went to a uh, a fairly moderate Christian school uh, in the 1970s, and it was quite liberal-minded, but obviously uh, moral assumptions there were a bit different to what we found now. Um, so, I mean, I think probably many of the teachers would have thought that homosexuality was morally wrong. Some would have thought that anyway. Uh, some would have been bit by feminism in those days it was called women's lib. So obviously society's changed. And I think with things like feminism and even you know other things like global warming, um, we do need, I mean, I think students need to be told that there are multiple perspectives on these things, even if one is ultimately right. I mean, if you think about feminism, this is interesting because there's a certain image I have of a very sort of passionate young late teen or early 20s something young woman who believes that culture is patriarchal and misogynistic and they will recite statistics about all sorts of things, pay gaps, uh, violence. And you might want to say, well, hold on, that may be true, but Where's the, where's the evidence coming from? Are you being given any other reading um, about this? Um, I mean, for example, three years ago, um, there was a, 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 on Channel 4 News, the Americans, uh, the, sorry, the Canadian psychologist Jordan Peterson came over to this country. He's coming next week, I think, again, I think. And she did an interview with Kathy Newman on Channel 4 News. It was clearly set up as a hostile interview. Kathy Newman was trying to present him as a sort of sexist, an antediluvian character who thought that women should be discouraged from being agreeable. Um, they talked about the pay gap and Peterson simply said, well, one reason for the pay gap is that women are more agreeable um, and they therefore are less likely to be demanding about getting greater pay. Newman read him as saying, oh, that's how things should be. And mm. so she went off on a tack. Peterson actually said immediately, and I think he dealt with that interview very well, actually. He said, no, I never said that at all. I spent a lot of my time doing a certain training for women. But, you know, women are more agreeable. This hooks in with another issue that was really explosive in August 2017. This was at Google when um, an engineer there called James Damore sent out a memo to his employees saying, well, one reason why there aren't so many men women in tech is that there's actually, on average, a genetic predisposition um, that tends to favor men with that sort of mind and disfavor women. This was immediately read as saying women aren't up to the job and Damore was fired on the spot. He never said that women weren't up to the job. He never said that women should be denied the same opportunities in tech or promotion within it as men. He just said, look, we, we, we have to be open to the possibility that some explanations of gender or sexual inequality are not social. Mm -hmm. Whereas the, the narrative we get all the time from young feminism 
including these very enthusiastic young women who spout these figures, is that all the causes are social. We, there's no evidence that all the causes are social. Mm. Uh, I mean, they could be, but, you know, we, we need to look at it. That is what I'm getting right. There's a kind of, call it soft left identitarian narrative, which I suspect is getting into schools, where people just aren't given access to the literature that suggests there are non-social causes, biological causes, genetic causes for certain inequalities. The assumption is, if, something, if, if there's an inequality, it's bad, no discussion permitted. Um, the cause is entirely social, no discussion permitted. Mm. So you then have to find more and more ingenious solutions which may well be attacking the wrong causes. So that's one example where there needs to be some factual balance and open-mindedness. And I do fear that the young are not getting it mm. in schools and they should be given it. Yeah. I want to move on now to, to who defends the right to free speech. And I, I, I think we probably both agree that right now free speech is seen as a right-wing cause, although, of course, it should be something that everyone fights for and values. I've got to say, looking into the groups now which fight for free speech, there do seem to be compromises and connections which I wish weren't there. So I'm going to try and explain something quite complicated, but um, you're a director of the Battle of Ideas, which you've mentioned, which is sort of like an, an annual event which with, with kind of panels and debates about issues of the day. But Battle of Ideas doesn't really live up to the impartiality that it perhaps likes to project you have to go all the way back to the 1970s and there's an academic called Frank Fioretti who founded the Revolutionary Communist Party and that, that Revolutionary Communist Party kind of evolved, became not so much communist and more some more kind of libertarian. In the end it did, yeah. Mm. So by the, by the 1990s, they were based around um, a magazine called Living Marxism, right, which was published by Claire Fox. And Living Marxism got in trouble, first of all, for sort of saying that what was going on in Rwanda wasn't a genocide. Then they accused the TV channel of fabricating evidence that Bosnian Muslims were being held in a concentration camp. That led to a libel case, which the magazine lost, and then it all folded. And then what happened was this group of people around the magazine Living Marxism sort of rebranded uh, with the magazine Spiked, and then with the Academy of Ideas, which was a think tank, which then kind of spawned the battle of ideas. And so those two things were, and to some extent still are, run by Claire Fox, who who published um, Living Marxism. So all these sort of people are connected. The reason I wanted to bring all this up was, well, obviously, first of all, to talk about Battle of Ideas, but also I wanted to mention on the show that like a month ago, I was talking to people from uh, a group called Free Speech Champions. So Free Speech Champions is a, is a kind of young person free speech campaign, which is largely funded by the Battle of Ideas. So I got in touch with them wanting to make an episode about free speech. Uh, and I talked to someone called Daniel Sharp. We planned an episode. We had a really good conversation. Uh, he had a lot of stories about university, about um, what happened to Dr. Neil Thin up in Edinburgh. Um, and we decided to bring in another person from the Free Speech Champions, um, Emma Gilland, because she is a sixth former. So she had a whole perspective from school. Um, so we had a great episode lined up. Uh, and I shared with them the questions I was going to ask. And I did a bit more research running up to the recording. So on the day of the recording, I did some more research and I found out that Emma, who was one of the guests, who's a sixth former, she recently wrote a book with her mum. And then her mum has written a book with Frank Fioretti, who's a friend of hers, about 12 years ago. So essentially, there was this very strong link between Emma, who's part of a supposedly independent free speech campaign. Uh, she got a family link to Frank Fioretti, who's sort of the kind of godfather of this whole group. And I This is Emma Gilland. Uh, Gilland. Yes, well, she is yeah. uh, the daughter of... Um 
Jenny Bristol, her mother, and yeah. Tony Gilland, and I know them both. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I, I, that you've raised a number of issues. Well, I just, sorry, I'm, well, I need yeah. to, the important bit's coming next, really, okay, because okay, I, right. I shared that question, basically said, I'm going to have to ask you about... Family connection in the context of, you know, how independent are freedom of speech champions, or is this really just an offshoot of Spiked and the surrounding kind of organisations? And... I kind of shared that with them. And two hours later, I got a message from Daniel. This is about an hour before we were going to record. And Daniel said, sorry, suddenly we've got a lot going on. And he said, this is to quote his message, everyone will be snowed under here for the foreseeable future. So he basically said, sorry, we're not doing an interview anymore. And no one from Free Speech Champions will be available. I found this, obviously, maybe you can tell, I found this really frustrated because I really wanted to make an episode, a kind of nuanced episode with them about, yes, the importance of free speech. I felt duty-bound to ask the difficult questions about the neutrality of Free Speech Champions. But it really wound me up that they weren't willing to field those questions. They were. It just felt hypocritical. I, I don't know the background to that. I do know uh, Emma Gilland, uh, sorry, um, I don't know where we're going. I, I know Jenny, Jenny Bristow and Tony Gilland. I also know Daniel Sharp. I, I haven't heard of this particular episode that you mentioned, so I can't comment on it. I mean, there could be all sorts of reasons why they didn't want to go ahead. Maybe they really were snowed under. I mean, I know Daniel does work very hard. But by the way, just to, on the background, um, you, you describe me as a director of the Battle of Adelaide. I'm not quite that. I'm what I, I've been involved with it for about 20 years on and off. I'm on what something called, I was on something called the Battle of Ideas Committee, which is basically a committee that um, helps to organise the, the conference. We now call it something else, the Battle Salon, where we have political discussions once a month or so and organise the Battle of Ideas. Um, also, just to, I know that the, the, the background to um, the, what was the Institute of Ideas, now the Academy of Ideas is controversial. Um, it did come out of a living Marxism, as you say, uh, which was associated with the now defunct Revolutionary Communist Party. Um, I never had anything to do with that. Um, I'd heard of it vaguely. I barely knew what it was. I got involved uh, when around the time, well, I got involved in the sense I was invited to be on panels around the time that Spikes was formed. What I think I'd say is that I, I did, there is a libertarian ethos to the kind of ideas. Claire Fox is quite openly libertarian and no secret of the fact that she was in the RCP. Uh, it's hardly a secret. I'm afraid I do sometimes come across um, something bordering on conspiracy theories about Battle of Ideas and the AOI. Uh, there's a website, I think, that purports to monitor them and points to all these connections. Well, of course, people are connected. People with the same ideas are bound to be connected. They know each other. So I think that there's yeah. a certain amount of, you know, scaremongering about them. Um, you know, I don't agree. I mean, uh, thinking about some of what the RCP stood for, I don't agree with quite a lot of it. I still disagree with a certain amount of what the, um, of what the kind of AOI stand for. I mean, I, I, but, but here's the funny thing. Um, I've had many conversations with people like Claire Fox about this, and we've never fallen out. Uh, I mean, Claire will say, okay, you disagree about this. Uh, you think, I, for example, think global warming is, a, is more of a, of a challenge than perhaps she thinks, but we can discuss it. Mm. And, I, and I think that what I will say for the Band of Ideas, and I wouldn't work for them otherwise, is that they really are one of the few organizations that do very fairly and very vigorously promote um, an ethos of inquiry mm. and freedom of speech. And they're not bigoted. And very often we try to have left-wing identitarians, if that's the, the word for them, on our panels. Often they just won't have anything to do with us. They won't come. Uh, or if they do come, they behave badly. And so we, I'm not saying that's, you know, I, I think there is a bias on the panels, and I've often mentioned this, and they are aware of it. So I think, you know, 
it's a mixture of things. I don't agree with all their stances. I think they're good on free speech. I think they're energetic. I think the living freedom movement for the young and the, the academy, these are all ways of getting young people involved in, in, in the movement for intellectual freedom. It does a lot of good. So um, that's really where I, my connection, that's where I stand on it. Mm -hmm. Thanks for explaining. I mean, I, for me, I, I think perhaps saying that it's a conspiracy is a maybe a bit strong, but I certainly feel disappointed that the battle of ideas, which is would like to call itself sort of the, the primary pro-free speech debate platform, is well has some sort of political agenda. I mean, as you've said, there's there's some some kind of biased panels, and it's not just on necessarily on arbitrary issues. You know, there's been times, for example, three years ago, there was a big pharmaceutical company that was that had sponsored the event and you know you'll find debates on gm crops which are suspiciously biased um, and as you mentioned climate change it doesn't really give climate change a fair shake and perhaps most seriously i mean maybe part of the reason it's difficult to get left-wing identitarians on is is some of the scandals in 2018 the battle of ideas received three hundred thousand dollars from the Koch brothers. So that's a sort of uh, American billionaire brothers who were into... Um, well, I didn't know about that, but uh, I, it's, so you say. But uh, well, okay, they, do well, get, they do get sponsorship. But it's not just sponsorship. It's kind of the Koch brothers have, have got this, kind of made a name for themselves in sort of secret lobbying um, against regulation and pro-lower uh, taxes. And I just feel like sort of organisations with an agenda sponsoring a free speech competition, it's... That doesn't reach the level of a conspiracy, but it certainly seemed to me undermines the mission of the platform, which is to really allow unbridled free speech. So your worry about it is that not enough people who disagree with that stance are invited to take part in panels. Uh, I mean, because I, I think there's no contradiction between having an agenda, which they clearly do quite openly, and also, and, and in that agenda, is a belief that there well, should I be think debate. For, maybe where I disagree with you is that they're open about having an agenda. I don't think they are open about having an agenda. Well, I think if, if you look at, well, you see, if you look at the, the, the descriptions and look at the battle websites, I mean, I think their agenda is, you know, is quite clear. I mean, they, they do actually support free speech, open inquiry. Now, I think your worry is that um, there's a sort of, there are hidden agendas behind it, that people um, with dubious agenda... Well, I mean, it, they do at least allow for debate for those things, and maybe not as so much they might. Um, we do, they do try to get, um, you know, people at the forefront of climate activism on board. They had a very strong um, proponent of the view that, um, uh, about white privilege, for example, at the battle two years ago, somebody who had a very strong left-wing and very intelligent left-wing entertainment position. Uh, it's quite possibly true that not enough of those people end up on the panels. Uh, many are invited. Some won't involve themselves. And I think, you know, when they write their battle blurbs, there is often a slant to mm. the blurbs. But I think one can see them and one can debate those things. So I think their defense is, yeah, we do have, we, we do have an agenda. We think we're things like tobacco. Uh, they are quite libertarian about that. They think that consenting adults who had access to information should make their own minds up about yeah. this. And, and, you know, when it comes to things like passive smoking, they do at least produce evidence that this is not the great threat it's often portrayed as being. But, you know, no doubt it's a mixed bag. I, in, I, in, my involvement is, has been as a producer of a large number of debates and often as a speaker. I know the people in it quite well. As I say, I don't, I don't agree with all their positions. I think on balance, though, they do a good job. But I appreciate the things that, that you're saying. And, and mm -hmm. I'm not 
at the heart of it in that way. So I'm not in the yeah. team. But I, but I know these things are said. I mean, I don't completely write off Battle of Ideas. I know the annual event happened last month, so the next one's a long way away. But I would like to go to the next festival because they do talk about a lot of issues, which I don't, don't get airtime otherwise, in terms of, you know, what we're talking about now, the limits of free speech and the limits of freedom, um, the role of the state in our lives, whether we maybe worry too much about safety culture. Safety culture is a massive bugbear of, of Frank Fioretti. But um, so I do think I do think these things need to be talked about. Um, I just find it weird. Maybe this is my just personal opinion, but I find it weird. For example, we had Ella Whelan on TV. I think this week she's she's obviously big in the uh, Academy of Ideas. But Ella Whelan was sort of arguing against clear labelling of sugar in in baby food because she felt that was an infringement or that was, you know, a, too much. I think that was too much for the intervention. I, 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 I know Ella quite well. I mean, we agree on many things and possibly not on others. Um, yeah. She chairs the committee, but I don't want to get personal about it. I think she does a lot of very good work. I think you know, she 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 appears on Sky News regularly, and she uh, is a, a spokesperson for libertarian views. So, I mean, the agenda is hardly hidden. I mean, she she comes out with it all mm-hmm. the time. But yeah. I suppose your worry is that um, is there some conflict of interest for you're involved in a free speech organisation with a view? Well, I think you can have a view and invite people to disagree with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think there has to be a, any requirement of neutrality on those issues if you're going to. Uh, have debates, uh, not per se, anyway. So, I think, yeah, I think um, you perhaps have a point there. You don't have to make a commitment to neutrality. I suppose where I worry is with a movement like Free Speech Champions, which is really trying to recruit um, people at university who are not happy with things going on on campus, the censorship, the the campaigns. Um, it's trying to recruit them, which is, I think, good. Let's get more young people talking about free speech. But I just don't want campaigns like that to be, you know, funneling children into a into a specific political mind view. I don't, I don't know if that's what free speech champions are doing, but it frustrates me that they have such a, such a strong link to a political group. Well, I think the students can make their own minds about what they, they think, apart from the free speech issue. Uh, you mean, I suppose your worry is that they're, be, that they're um, are being sucked into something they have not been entirely informed what it is about. I mean, a lot of the, I know, I mean, I've given lectures myself to the, uh, the um, Living Freedom movement. I find a lot of people already seem to have made their minds up about some of those issues. So, I mean, it could be, it's because they knew the agenda and sympathised with it that they, they got on board. Yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, that... There are young people who, as you say, are dissatisfied with what they perceive as the left bias. And the ones I've come across are very sort of intelligent, seeming independent-minded people who may not last in that movement. I mean, it is after all for the young. Mm. Um, you know, that's all I can really say. I'm not actually personally involved in that particular branch of it, yeah. uh, but I come across them and I'm, I'm glad they're around. Piers, I'm just going to ask you the same question I like to ask all my guests at the end of the show. What do you wish more people were talking about in education? Hmm. Well, this is, this is hard. I, um, I, I, th- I think I want to look at that question slightly askance. Um, I think there are ways of thinking that uh, possibly are under-promoted education. And I'll call it really, um, roughly call it critical thinking, uh, the ability to assess arguments, the ability not to personalise arguments all the time, in particular, the ability to, and because I'm not a scientist, but the ability to assess evidence scientifically about all sorts of claims, including claims that they are 
to whose, whose conclusions are, to which they're very sympathetic. So, um, you know, you might be trying to, uh, to mount a case for saying that society is misogynistic. People need to understand it's no use just accumulating anecdotes about terrible things that men do to women, because no doubt uh, in any accumulation of anecdotes may not be represented as a whole picture. You have to take into account good things that men do to women, also bad things that women do to men. Now, it may well be that in the end, society is patriarchal. We can argue for that. But an ability, an ability to separate the conclusion from the soundness of the reasons that are given for the conclusion. So a mental habit whereby people can say, OK, I agree with that conclusion, but I think it's been terribly argued for. Or I disagree with that conclusion, but the argument's pretty good. It's just that they fail at the last hurdle, this sort of thing. And I'd like to see a general focus given in education on what you can rather pompously call truth-sensitive methods of inquiry. And this is very much part of John Stuart Mill's case for intellectual freedom. Um, and I, I, in my book, I wrote a book on um, intellectual freedom and the culture wars, came out, Palgrave, uh, just, well, officially this year, but it actually came out a year ago, um, in which I tried to look at John Stuart Mill's case for freedom of inquiry, arguing that it's essential that we learn how to cultivate truth-sensitive methods of inquiry in science, uh, in, in, in something analogous in literature, in the art, but the best atmosphere for those methods of inquiry is a non-dogmatic atmosphere where you are free to lead any argument where it goes. And there's a very good book by my former colleague at Heathrow, Stephen Law, uh, if I can use this word on a podcast, Believing Bullshit is the, uh, the name of his book. Uh, he's largely talking about religion, but he talks about the paranormal and sometimes politics as well, about eight ways in which the human mind is deceived by bad ways of thinking bad arguments, like appealing to mystery, appealing to personal experience, as if that settled anything, anecdotes, but it fits. I recommend that book. That I'd like to see that way of thinking, because once people get used to it, they'll see it doesn't necessarily support any particular view on these matters. It's a really good tool for assessing any view. So I'd like to see an old-fashioned liberality of thought. Uh, so I'm sorry, I didn't answer your question about the curriculum, in effect. I'm sure they should be talking about civic responsibility, climate change, feminism, all those things, so long as they're not just given a reading list with only one view represented, so long as people don't feel that they can't express a contrary view, even an anti-feminist view. I mean, people should feel free to express those views. And if they're wrong, have it shown. Piers, that's a fantastic summary. Thank you so much. And I want to thank you again for coming onto the podcast. Thank you very much for, uh, and if anyone is a note, and it's rather deeply priced, unfortunately, but uh, Intellectual Freedom and the Culture Wars uh, came out from Palgrave Macmillan last year, in which I discuss freedom of inquiry, taking a friend and free speech, subjectivity, um, privilege and identity, being friends with your enemies, and other things. So, um, if that's very interesting. But thank you, Stanley, for uh, your very nice, nicely put and penetrating questions. And thanks for the reminder about the book. I think we all do need a dose of the things you just mentioned. Thank you. Sorry about the price, but we'll do They're actually, it's, it's, try Amazon. I think it's cheaper there. But anyway. <laughs> okay, you heard it here first. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. That was Piers Ben, who was really good to talk to. Clearly, Piers has his own opinions, 
but he's got that academic interest in the details that keeps him grounded. I agree with him on the principle that difficult discussions, disagreements and even arguments are worth having. We should see our opinions as hypotheses which others can help us to test, not as unshakable truths from which nothing can pull us away. I know there was quite a complex web that I had to explain in terms of the group Free Speech Champions. If you want to learn more about it, do some reading about the LM network. In a nutshell, many of the people arguing for free speech in the UK today have a shared and usually undisclosed affiliation with this loosely defined network. I had to bring it up because I was so annoyed that a free speech group would refuse to talk to me when they realised I was going to ask some tricky questions. I'm annoyed that there can't be a free speech group that isn't in bed with repulsive publications like Spiked. But I can see that part of the reason is that people on the political left and centre don't think that the chilling effect on speech is worth worrying about. We should all be talking about this. We should be forging agreements on where the limits of free speech should lie. And we should be challenging the growing sense that young people should be safe from offensive opinions. Our conversation touched on what I think is most lacking in schools these days. Thinking for oneself. My students are aged 14 to 18. The time at which people start forming a political identity, beliefs, allegiances. But right now, school doesn't provide any meaningful engagement with different ideas. Academic subjects are tied to facts, and they don't leave room for discussion. When space is made, it's often woefully partisan. Last year, there was an election for the Mayor of London. An amazing opportunity to get kids thinking about issues that affect them. And my school put on a single online assembly. The teacher running it, who's a councillor for one of the main parties, introduced the main two candidates, in a rather biased way, and urged children to sign up to a youth hustings event. After her 20-minute lecture, the questions came flooding in. What power does the mayor have? Has the incumbent fulfilled the promises he made in the last election? Who are the other candidates? The questions showed just how much interest there was in discussing politics, and also how little space there is in school for anything of this sort. The result is that students know next to nothing about how power works in society. But worst of all, they don't know how to explore different viewpoints or how to disagree healthily. They are woefully unprepared for the barrage of misinformation and propaganda found on social media. Okay, I'm going to tear myself away from this subject now. Next time, I'll be speaking to Emily Charkin about community-based education. Emily runs Wilderness Wood, about an hour outside of London, which is a little piece of forest in which children play, learn and organise events. We talk about the community that she has helped to grow and her vision of what makes a great education. Until next time, see ya.